0: Welcome to the Empire Files podcast. This is Abby Martin.
1: And Mike Preisner. Thanks, everyone, for joining us. We have a special guest today. Uh, We are joined by Seamus Malikafsali, a journalist covering Middle Eastern geopolitics. You can find his articles on Substack. And he also has a new podcast called The Greatest Sin, which covers the multi-century history of foreign intervention in Iran. Uh, Seamus, thank you for joining us. Oh, thank you so much for having me. Honored to be on. Um, so to start, we're really happy to have you. And we're going to talk about, of course, mostly contemporary things happening today. Um, but just to kind of give some more background on your podcast and the the reason for it, because it informs our discussion today, you know, your, your new show... Um, is about the you know the long history of foreign intervention in Iran and why is it that you're dedicating a show to this and also like why is that so important for people to understand the context of like Iranian politics today not just U.S. Iran relations but internal Iranian politics and uh, all the things that we're going to discuss.
2: I think that's a good question and it relates to the fact that. I, think, I don't think it's a secret that a lot of American journalists who are covering the Middle East, they operate from the position of either not understanding the Persian language, not being familiar with Iranian culture, not being familiar with Iranian history. And to some extent, that's because maybe they don't want to. But to the regular observer, it's because there really isn't access to very easily accessible resources for them to learn about it. Uh, either it's been hidden from them by the educational system um, or deliberately um, by the government, or it's just they don't speak the language. Foreign intervention from world powers has shaped Iranian history and informed virtually all of its decision-making and the past that it has gone down. Um, if you don't know about the history of it, I mean, not just in 1979, not just in the 1980s, but I mean, we're talking about the 50s, we're talking about the 40s, the 20s. Um, I mean, you speak to even many people in the Iranian diaspora today, people who speak the language, people who are who think of themselves very well connected to their history. They don't know about uh, the Anglo-Soviet invasion. They don't know about the Socialist Republic of Gilan, uh, it's important to know these things because otherwise, without that context, you can easily lead yourself into thinking that Iran is acting out of some unannounced, um, unprovoked malice, that it's this evil power that has decided to place its tendrils onto uh, all that is evil and good. But that's really not the case.
0: Context is what we like here at Empire Files. This is the most important thing, I mean, really with every issue going on in the world. And I really appreciate your podcast for that fact alone. I mean, it's it's a super crucial podcast. I hope everyone checks out. You speak Farsi, which sets you apart, of course, from many journalists reporting on this issue. Uh, What is the mood in Iran right now in terms of U.S.-Iran relations? I mean... (sighs) Thankfully, there is
2: actual polling to back this up. I'm not just speaking as my own person here. Um, The mood has shifted very dramatically since the Iran deal completely fell apart. Mm -hmm. Um, Back in 2016, back in 2015, 2016, when the deal was first announced, an overwhelming majority of Iranians backed it. They were in support of it. They thought it was a great venture. Um, But since sanctions came back, I mean, it's gone completely topsy turvy. I mean, more than two thirds of Iranians now, when polled, said that they did not want to engage with the U.S. in the future on the same terms because they simply could not be trusted. Uh, distrust of the American government has gone up. Distrust of Americans as a people has gone up. Mm. Um, th- this distrust in American institutions, uh, dislike—I mean, just—it's it- gone. It's gone pretty bad it's gotten pretty bad from an already not exactly great position. I mean, there's never (laughs) been a time in Iranian history where opinion of the United States has ever been particularly high, but it's continued to descend from that already low point.
1: Yeah. And you know, it's, that ties into like the initial question I asked about how does that long history of intervention factor into Iranian politics, not just, you know, from the understanding of Americans and how they view the issue, but Obviously, within Iran, like the dominant thing in pol- politics would seem to be the United States and uh, what the United States is doing.
2: I mean, absolutely. It inf- like the United States. It's not just Iranian politicians looking for uh, necessarily some sort of scapegoat or a way out. <laughs> the actions of the of the American government inform all decision-making because their military is in the region, they're in the Persian Gulf, uh, their economic policies are hampering the Iran's economy to a staggering extent. Um, it's inescapable. You have to account for what America is going to do when you make virtually any decision in Iranian politics.
1: Right. And so let's talk about the current positions in the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action, the JCPOA, otherwise known as the Iran nuclear deal. Can you talk about where the negotiations stand right now?
2: Uh, They're pretty much at a standstill, um, at least at the current moment. Um, There's this very strange game of chicken going around where the United States wants Iran to come back into the deal. And they say that... You know, if you come back into the deal, you know, no hard feelings. We're gonna go. We're going back into it ourselves. Back, back to the status quo. Everything's hunky dory. The issue is, is that Iran, I think, rightfully doesn't believe that this is the right course of action and wants something more concrete from the United States to show that they can be trusted. Um, the main thing that, at the very least, Iranian conservatives have suggested, and also a lot of reformists, is that the United States needs to first lift the nuclear-related sanctions on Iran, and then they can talk about re-entering the JCPOA, because what can happen is that, okay, let's say the Iran returns to JCPOA, and then the U.S. reneges on their promise to come back in. So Iran has reduced its nuclear program, pulled itself back, pulled itself uh, pulled all of its nuclear progress back. And then for what? They're in an even worse position now than they were uh, earlier. Um, it, it just doesn't make sense. And right now, they're they're flying toward what I fear is going to be kind of the point of no return. Um, the presidential election is coming up in June. And after that point, There very likely is not going to be a diplomacy-minded president in office in Iran. It's very likely going to be conservative. And if that's going to happen, then you can almost certainly count any return to the JCPOA off the table, no matter what.
0: Right. I mean, there's so many people in Biden's cabinet that were instrumental in the negotiations under the Obama administration. So I think a lot of people, including myself, just thought this was a given. You know, rejoining the JCPOA was going to happen under Biden. So I was pretty surprised when uh, Secretary of State Antony Blinken just kind of announced that the sanctions would not be lifted. As you mentioned, it's just this stalemate now where they're just not only reneging on everything that they put forward, but also just saying Iran needs to fully capitulate to these draconian level sanctions that Trump instated. On Iran, and then you have that speech that Ayatollah Khomeini just gave uh, on Sunday, basically saying, you know, that any candidate in the election needs to just assume that the sanctions will be in place, um, and that they should just start developing the economy around the notion that the sanctions will not be lifted. Um, talking about the latest stance on rejoining the deal, um, that the U.S. must lift the sanctions. I mean, it sounds pretty pretty uh, reasonable, right? Like, no these no. sanctions. <laughs> that, that's the thing,
2: is that it's been such an incredible uh, about face on the opinion of JCPOA, not just among the Iranian public inside of Iran, but outside of it. I mean, there was um, there was a commentator, his name escapes me, but he was on BBC Persian. Um, he works for BBC Persian, which is an opposition network based in London. Um, and he posted a tweet mocking an old headline from Khamenei in 2017 that stated that they, there could be a possibility of a deal with America, because it's so obvious to everyone, no matter what political affiliation you are now, if you're Iranian, that this deal was was doomed to fail, that any belief in it was completely misplaced. Um, there's, a, there's a broad agreement that maybe not all the sanctions need to be removed immediately for negotiations to come back and for the JCPOA to come back, but just for America to show something, anything, mm-hmm. literally anything. Mm-hmm. And America does not seem at all willing to do so because they believe that Iran is in the same position that it was um, before the deal was was negotiated, probably an even worse place. But that's it's a bit more complicated than that. And I'm not sure if American politicians really get that complexity very much.
0: Were you surprised when Biden... Uh, took power and you know Blinken just kind of nonchalantly was like yeah like it's it's not really like a priority for us <laughs> you know it was I mean, like such a big thing in the campaign right.
1: you know it was like the one thing yeah. that they could say Trump we disagree with with you on this on foreign policy
2: yeah it, it's a bit of a.
1: I, I, don't, I don't even know what to say I mean
2: I knew in my heart that it wasn't going to be that surprising but I just mm. I had some hope but but the issue is I mean you just think about it for more than five seconds. Okay, so Biden does go back to the JCPOA. And then even if Iran does abide by what it agreed to and it goes back to JCPOA, I mean there's just going to be this firestorm from Republican politicians. You know, how could you give all mm. that Iran wanted when Trump gave you such a strong negotiating position, quote unquote? And Biden is obviously not someone of a strong constitution against conservative politicians (laughs) so this would have been it would have been a kind of a needless political fight at least from his perspective and this shows him as at least slightly stronger than what he may have wanted to do originally and it's this yeah yeah
0: yeah i mean i guess we should have taken heed of biden's statement on the Soleimani uh assassination where he basically just agreed with trump he Mm -hmm. was like yeah like Soleimani was A horrible guy and deserve to die, but what are we gonna do now? Like strategically it was bad because we don't have a plan. (laughs) Right, but I'm glad he's dead. (laughs) (laughs) I was just like, whoa. So yeah, I mean it's it's sad to say that I guess we shouldn't be too surprised that, you know, Biden notoriously just kowtows to Republicans and yeah, they're definitely factoring in this notion of like bipartisan unity with their you know, with this whole situation, I'm sure.
2: Yeah, I mean, this is a whole bigger discussion, but Trump and Biden's policies so far toward Iran, while they have been very much verbally different, I mean, it's kind of difficult not to be, but (laughs) in practice, it it hasn't really been that different so far. I mean, no sanctions have been lifted. Airstrikes have continued in Syria on Iranian-supported positions, military positions. They're in the exact same position that they were. And functionally, while—and as you said, Biden did not oppose the assassination of Qasem Soleimani based on, you know, <laughs> this is going to start a war. This is <laughs> illegal based on international law. This is immoral. Like, what precedent does is set? It was like, oh— we we went into assassinating a military leader and we didn't have a plan to do like, it <laughs> afterwards. Like, it's not... It's laughable. It's, it's yeah.
1: Well, you know, I guess it, it makes sense that Biden's just kind of continuing the the policy that, that Trump handed to him. Um, you know, and I think people were expecting something different because not just Biden, but the rest of Obama's, like, foreign policy team basically, like, came back into power. And when Obama came in in 2008... It was a shift. You know, the US was bogged down in the Middle East and Obama's whole foreign policy message was, you know, we're bogging ourselves down in the Middle East and we are neglecting the real threat, which is China. And we need to do the Asia pivot. That was Obama's thing, like the pivot to pivot from the Middle East to Asia. And so that's why his, you know, first Uh, international trip after being elected was to Egypt to give a big speech to say we are not at war with Islam. He did the massive drawdown in Iraq, you know, against the wishes of top commanders, and in particular, the top uh, commander in Iraq, like went to Congress to try to stop the Obama's troop withdrawal, but it happened anyway. And then the Iran nuclear deal was part of that. It was part of the Asia pivot to stop um, this, all of this, you know, Middle East, uh, you know, geopolitical uh, screw ups and to focus on the real threat you know, this looming war uh, with China. And so, you know, people part of that team you think would have the same uh, position coming in. But, you know, it's for them, it's just, oh, well, they don't care that Iranians are suffering. Um, And it's, you know, it's, there's no pressure to do anything. And so they're happy to just kind of continue the plan and make all these new demands basically to uh, get Iran back to, uh, into the deal to impose all this new shit on them. Um, But anyway, so I, I think that, but but the thing is that the the deal in itself e- even when it happened was like bad because it's like the US dictating to Iran what it can develop in terms of like energy or whatever and the US has no right to do that but but my question for you is that this idea that Iran is even trying to develop nuclear weapons. Um, I know that the Ayatollah issued a, a fatwa or a religious edict against nuclear weapons, like forbidding the development of nuclear weapons or WMDs. And there's always been the, uh, they've always maintained that they're not trying to develop a nuke. Y-
2: yes, that, that that is exactly right. Um, there is really no truly independent um, corroboration that Iran has a nuclear weapons program. Um, much of that comes from American intelligence, and even within the realm of that American intelligence, um, the claim was that that the military nuclear program ended, you know, decades ago. So even within that narrative, this idea really doesn't work. Mm. Um, the The nuclear program of Iran was started. I mean, back in the nineteen fifties, um, it was an Eisenhower directed program called Adams mm-hmm. for Peace. And it was meant for encouraging peaceful nuclear enrichment, um, peaceful scientific advancement. And it was very freely given to the Shah. And then when the Shah was overthrown, there was a brief period during the war where it was not working. And then afterward, they restarted it. Um, There's been a lot of, I think, I don't know what the proper term is, I guess... Overblownness about I think the scale of Iran's nuclear program. Mm-hmm. Um, like I, I would pose a question to you, Mike. Like if you knew nothing about Iran's nuclear program, just what you had seen in the media, how many nuclear power plants
1: do you think that they had? Ooh, I mean, it seems like it'd be a lot. Like I would guess, uh, like is eight a lot of nuclear power plants? That would be my <laughs> guess. Okay.
2: Um, Iran and Slovenia have the exact same number of active nuclear plants. <laughs> oh, okay. it's, it's one. Wow. Um, uh, Iran has, I believe, two under construction, but they've been under construction for a number of years. Um, yeah. I mean, Iran has been very, very, very clear that they have been doing this for peaceful nuclear enrichment purposes, for you know, power and scientific research and... They've been very adamant in allowing IAEA inspectors in, um, you know, very freely. I mean, that was part of the deal, and they allowed that to happen. And only when the deal fell through after years of the U.S. not being compliant did they roll those inspection teams back. But that would, they freely gave that away because they wanted to show that there was nothing to hide here. Mm-hmm. Like there are no weapons being hidden in sand dunes in the desert or anything like that. It was all open, it was all out out there. There was no need to hide anything. And that's been what the Iranian government line has been through across multiple administrations. And people who have in the past outliers, I want to make that clear, outliers who have suggested that Iran should make a nuclear weapon, have been lambasted by the most hardline conservatives when they have suggested that. It's just not on the table in really any sense of the word.
1: And so when we hear now that like Iran has resumed enriching uranium, which is like, you know, um, because of the the Iran nuclear deal falling apart, they're now re-enriching and whatever at this rate, is that just like part of that game of chicken, you know, to like show, oh, we're gonna do this and this because you said not to and all of that?
2: Oh, absolutely, absolutely. Um, y- you have to remember that n- the um enriched amount for uranium that go into nuclear weapons is around eighty to ninety percent mm-hmm. um, right now the enrichment in Iran that they was at before the deal and I believe what it is at currently is about twenty percent mm-hmm. um, medium enriched uranium is really critical to a lot of uh, a lot of nuclear research um, but it is absolutely a form of I don't know if this is a term that really makes sense, but kind of a like a toothless antagonism or a toothless Mm -hmm. kind of bluffing in that Iranian politicians know that 20% enriched uranium, 60% enriched uranium, that means nothing. It Mm -hmm. cannot make a weapon. It's not even close to building a weapon, but American and European politicians do not know that. (laughs) They think that 20% enriched uranium is a nuclear weapon. They think a 60% enriched uranium is even more of a nuclear weapon. And so by Threatening that we're going to enrich your rating 20%, we're going to enrich your to 40%. Like, doesn't that freak you out? Like, that's part of that negotiations. Like, we'll get closer and closer to this. Right. And the people on the negotiating team who know nuclear policy know this. But the people putting pressure on the American government to either for or against these deals don't know those specifics. And that's all part of that.
0: You mean Iran isn't weeks away from having a nuclear weapon, as Tony Blinken asserted recently. Even he even gave a shorter time frame than Netanyahu. I was pretty impressed. He did?
2: Yeah, yeah. I would say I would say it's pretty pretty far off. I think a lot of <laughs> things would have to shift uh, for that to happen. Um but Iran has been weeks away from nuclear weapon for like what, like twenty years yeah, now? Right. Yeah right. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: It's always the same line. Well it's just so absurd. You know, because anyone who knows pretty basic things about the situation knows how just laughably like false that is. It just seems really strange to just go out there and parrot uh, such an outrageous talking point.
2: Yeah, I'm not. I'm not exact. The Biden's foreign policy team. I mean, I know it's early in the administration, so it might become more clear later on. It's a very strange mishmash of opinions. I mean, we have people like Blinken, and um, his name escapes me, but Biden's uh, national security advisor taking a very Jake hard Sullivan. line.
0: Jake yeah, Sullivan. Yeah,
2: Jake Sullivan. Um, taking a very hard line against Iran. I mean, talking about their ballistic missile programs and what Iran will need to do to come back in. And then you have people like Rob Malley, um, much more conciliatory. I mean, he even admitted uh, this week to BBC Persian that the sanctions on Iran had caused a lot of harm to the Iranian people. And that admission had never been given, to my knowledge, by an American official. It's a very strange mix. And I think that might contribute to the i think inevitable failure of the jcpoa that they really can't seem to agree on a strategy in the time frame that they need to agree on a strategy
0: mm-hmm. yeah and how long is iran just going to wait you know especially with this election coming up uh, and going back to obama really quickly we can't forget that obama you know launched stuxnet the cyber attacks of the centrifuges and um, and I guess in Iran's single nuclear weapon or like nuclear <laughs> research facility, like they just like unleashed this computer virus. Yeah. You know? And I mean, nuclear scientists
2: were assassinated during his administration. Oh, yeah. During Israel.
0: Obama. Oh, my God. Yeah. Yeah. It,
2: it, it's it's, yeah, yeah, it's just a, just a very strange strategy to kind of look back on. And in some ways, Biden is following in those footsteps by maybe not necessarily Uh, assassinating nuclear scientists or being complicit in that, at least not yet. But they are still militarily trying to go against Iran and trying to go against their foreign policy and attempt to get them back to the negotiating table. But I'm not sure that it's going to work this time.
0: Well, it is such a crazy thing that happened under Trump. You know, Trump really brought us to the precipice of war with Iran, you know, openly assassinating General Soleimani in, in broad daylight. Then the Fakhriza Day assassination and like in this breaking bad style automated machine gun assassination. God, there are so many crazy details. Like, what the hell? And it's like assassination. You, would, you would think that Biden would just be like, like hold a press conference on day one and like a pa- I mean, it's just insane that all of this is just like left by the wayside and just forgotten about when it was, it probably had just devastating consequences in Iranian society. If I'm not mistaken. I mean, let's talk about, talk about Fakhrizadeh's assassination And just you know the the possible perps for that, I I I would guess Israel. (laughs) No, Um, you you aren't far
2: off. Um, (laughs) I mean, Fakhri Zadeh. I mean, there was just this flurry of of news about it when it first came out because the details kept getting crazier and crazier and crazier. I mean, there was this one ton specially made weapon that was mounted on the back of a truck. There were automated. Uh, uh, ways of firing it. Um, they specifically only targeted Fakhri Zadeh and his car, and his family was unharmed. Um, it was a very complicated, complex assassination that exposed really huge holes in Iran's intelligence community. And it was one of the things that eventually pushed Iran to, to start enriching uranium above the 3.5%. It was what forced parliament to take those measures against the wishes of the president. Mm-hmm. I mean, it, it also it's, I mean, it's encouraged right now presidential candidates to run. He was an Iran nuclear scientist who survived an attempted Israeli assassination attempt. And when he was interviewed, he said that he was running because they had brazenly assassinated one of his colleagues and he wanted to make a statement out of it. Um, it hasn't made as much of an impact as Soleimani has, but it's still very much in the public consciousness, even though obviously America completely moved on after about a week, if it even really concerned itself with it at all. Uh, yeah, yeah, it's just, it, there's no concern for the idea that Iranians may hold on to certain grudges, uh, longer than the Americans might think about what has happened. And I think that kind of informs the decision making.
0: Well, remember like Bush senior refused to apologize for downing that Iranian aircraft that oh, killed like God. hundreds of civilians. Yeah. Um, I still, I still horrifying. look back on that clip
2: with complete, it's so, it's so, uh, even by the standards of today, right. it's incredibly tone deaf. It's bizarre. I'll never apologize for the United States of America. Ever. I don't care what the facts are, I will lead her, I will do my level best to stand up
1: for freedom and democracy around the world by keeping the United States of America strong and by keeping our eyes wide open as we welcome change in the world, but keeping our eyes wide open.
0: It's super egregious, um, but let's talk more about Fakhrizadeh and and Soleimani because you know, in Western media, well, I don't even know if you really could call it Western media. I'm sure Western media wasn't really like, you know, covering the, the alleged popularity. I mean, it, it seemed to be depicted in different ways, depending on what media you were looking at. But how revered was Soleimani in Iranian society? And what impact did his assassination have?
2: Ghasem Soleimani, I mean, it, it astounded me. I think I know what you're referring to. I mean, Masih Ali Najad, I mean, she went, who is a paid employee of the US government. She went on Fox News and talked about how Iranians all hate Soleimani. Um, Ari Fleischer, I think is his name. Uh, <laughs> he had gone on and talked about how this would be the moment where Iranians throw off their chains and realize <laughs> that they need to overthrow the government. But there is independent polling on this to confirm it, but anyone in Iran would tell you is that Qasem Soleimani was the most popular figure in Iran, period. Wow. What? Every politician in Iran, no matter how popular they were, were still less popular than Qasem Soleimani. Um, Damn. Just across any political affiliation, across religious lines, he was an unbelievably popular figure. And there was a reason for that. In that, unlike a lot of other IRGC figures, a lot of other military figures, despite what Soleimani was doing behind the scenes, which was interfering with politics, talking about politics in public, he had a very specific image, one that fought against Iran's enemies, one that was very steadfast against America and ISIS, and was not concerned with, you know, trivial matters of elections and parliamentary, uh, motions. He was a purely nationalistic figure. And that really appealed to a lot of people. And when he was assassinated, that's why, I mean, there were crowds stretching on into infinity, practically out of all of these different cities, people from all different political affiliations, even if they were opposed to the Iranian government, um, Came out in support of this. I mean, I, I speak anecdotally, but my father—I mean, he's a communist, and he doesn't like the IRGC very much. But he still loved Soleimani because of what he represented—that he mm-hmm. s- supposedly saved Iran from being annihilated by ISIS, from you know, destruction. And <laughs> when you assassinate that kind of figure who appeals to so many people, regardless of what he did, what is the response that you think you're gonna get? Like, flights were sold out to watch his funeral procession. I mean, it's, it's, I mean, looking back on it, it's just astounding that America thought that that was gonna work out for them in any shape or sense of the word. And you can tell, I, I remember this very vividly, is that Trump clearly did not know who he was assassinating. Because he went, I want to say, it was on it was on some conservative radio show um, whose name escapes me, unfortunately. But he talked about how Soleimani should have been killed 20 years ago and that he had been on the run uh, for many years. So he clearly thought of Soleimani as some bin Laden-style terrorist who was above <laughs> the law. But 20 years ago, Soleimani was assisting the U.S. military in Afghanistan to fight the Taliban. Like, this is someone who is a military official in a government. Uh, He wasn't some shadowy figure, you know, lurking and waiting to attack the innocent, Um, at least not to Iranians. Iranians loved him. And that pushed a lot of public opinion against America even further.
1: But it's interesting what you say about your father, because, you know, the assassination, of of course, of the most popular political figure in the country is like wild as it is. But even people, obviously, who didn't like Soleimani, like would rally to him because like, you know, if any political figure in the United States was assassinated by another country, you would have a lot of fucking people in this country who all of a sudden rallies to that person as like a symbol of like, we have been attacked by another country, like 9-11 9-11 style or whatever. Yeah. And, and um, on 9-11, I,
2: I mean, Soleimani, even like even at a base level, like he didn't have any specific, like particular event that skyrocketed. this kind of popularity at a base level. He was still more popular percentage wise than George Bush was right after 9-11. And that what? was his baseline. So wow. if you imagine assassinating George W. Bush, someone assassinating George W. Bush right after 9-11, what kind of response do you think that would yield? Like, it wouldn't be in your favor, really, if you rocked either, something like that.
1: I mean, it's incredible that there was, uh, knowing all that now, the response from Iran, right. you know, like, you know, basically blowing up that military base where they knew that no soldiers would would die. <laughs> and uh, it was just kind of a symbolic thing to be like, we have to strike back. So we're going to in the most minimal way possible. I mean, what? It puts that in a whole new light for me.
2: Yeah, I mean, Iran, I think, I mean, I'm not supporting this action, obviously, but it was probably, I think, they threaded the needle. Even surprises me, the fact that the United States never responded to this militarily. Mm -hmm. I mean, Iran threw just tens of ballistic missiles at a U.S. military base, and they did it in such a specifically measured way with the intention not to kill US soldiers, that the United States did not feel it was worth it for them to strike back after a direct attack on their own installation. Um, I think that probably speaks to what the threat would be posed if the United States were to get into a military war with Iran, that Mm -hmm. it would not be like Iraq or Afghanistan where things just kind of Mm crumble. Like it would be quite a fight, I think.
0: Talk a little bit about that moment for you, especially with someone who has uh, family ties in Iran, I'm sure, just as those missiles were launching back at the U.S. base. And I remember the news projecting that people, that there were casualties, actual deaths reported at the beginning, like, um, and it was just the most horrifying standstill thinking that this is it, you know, like because it's it's been on the table for a long time of course especially in the aftermath of the war on terror that the US of course wants to, <laughs> Iran to fall um, it's part of the global plan of US hegemony and it just seemed like that that was it man like I don't they know what their you were thinking at that to go time to war. yeah no it was, it was a really really horrifying couple days there
2: yeah no I, I remember that night vividly I mean that had I mean it had never happened before iran publicly so obviously hitting a us military installation and you just kind of had to hope and pray as like the news came in of like what sites were being hit and the possibility that there were casualties that somehow a miracle was going to happen and no war erupted from this mm-hmm. and i mean even if it was obama or even if it was you know some other president I wouldn't have had a lot of hope for that. But if it was Trump, mm-hmm. I mean, it would have just been a done deal there. Um, Especially some, given
0: who was around him, you know, John yeah, Bolton. Yeah.
2: The, like, Pompeo. I mean, yeah. these were people who were just, they they were—they wanted blood. And somehow Trump, I, I'm still astounded that that video exists of Trump just coming out to the podium and saying that Iran struck our facilities, but there's no real need to to strike back in any way, that there was minimal casualties. So we can just go back to normal here. We've we've restored deterrence in that way. Um, They still use that phrase. And I'm still astounded that they use that phrase after their own military base was hit by ballistic missiles.
0: Restored
2: Um, deterrence. But yeah, I mean, I flew into uh, Beirut a couple days afterward um, to move there. And by that time, there were already Um, by the highway going from the airport, they had replaced all of the signs um, along that road with photos of Soleimani as you came in. And Nasrullah had a speech, I think, the next day afterward. Like, you could really feel the tension in the air, even if it wasn't necessarily inside Iran or inside America. Like, it was pretty palpable that something was going to go wrong, even if... You know they had gotten off scot-free the the time earlier
0: sure sure and what's interesting is trump is actually still given credit being like well he you know trump stopped the war it's or like he what started are you talking no no i said
2: this on chapo <laughs> trap house like you can't give credit for trump pulling us back from the war for the brink of war with iran if he was the person who bought <laughs> you in right. the first place like you can't give credit for that that's an absurd thing to give credit for
1: right yeah, especially right. you know it's it's obvious that they like walked back from the precipice like um because of course a war with iran like you said earlier would not be like iraq um you know w- when all this was going on like i was funny enough i was at like this uh, this bar and i there's this uh young sailor like getting lunch with his mom um and he use active duty guy on a ship and he was telling her he's like yeah we're about to go deploy out to the you know d- near the the Strait of Hormuz and all this stuff and he was saying he's like yeah he's like when the war first starts he's like we're probably going to lose a lot of ships but then we're just going to obliterate the whole country and that's what was he was an officer and this is what was <laughs> being discussed within like the ranks of like the military command but he was talking about that about it and it's like excited like yeah you know we're going to go get him to away and it's like well hopefully you're not on one of those fucking first ships to go down and he's like talking about how yeah a bunch of the ships are going to go down like you know that have like a thousand. Sailors on them, and everyone's going to drown in the ocean, and then we're just going to like nuke Iran. Um, but obviously, like that would really have to, that would be the scale of it if it had actually happened. And so that response, like from Iran, like within Iranian society, did do you think from what from your read of it, did people feel like satisfied with that response? You know the fact that Soleimani was assassinated, and then no American blood was shed as a response. It was
2: really complicated. Um, initially, afterward, um, Khamenei and other people in the Iranian government were came out and said that this was this was the retribution. You know, we, we blew up your base. This was effective retribution. But the issue was is that right after Soleimani, the the operation Martyr Soleimani, which is what it was called, happened. The IRGC accidentally shot down a civilian airliner that was full of Iranian citizens. And this debacle, I mean, it stretched on into a week as the government investigated, the president threatened to resign if the IRGC didn't uh, apologize publicly. Um, it, It admired the entire thing in this, you can't, how can you talk about this glory of this retribution that we gave for the killing of our most popular figure when that operation directly led to the deaths of hundreds of Iranian civilians. And this was the same tragedy that the Americans had done against the Iran airplane, I mean, decades ago, and they're still mourning it. And so there became this very strange shift in tone where the Iranian government now had to figure out a new way of retribution for Soleimani, because now that wasn't worth it. They had to do something new.
0: Sorry, Empire Babies, that's the end of your preview for this episode. There's over an hour left to go in the full version, where we get into really fascinating details about Israel and their covert ops in Iran, the Iranian cult known as the MEK, how exactly Iran's political system really works, and very important stuff about the Iranian election coming up in June. This episode is only available at patreon.com empirefiles for as little as $2 a month, which is how we keep all of our video content free and accessible to all. Thanks for listening.